If he killed him on this trip, Tom thought, he could simply say that some accident had happened. He could... He had just thought of something brilliant. He could become Dickie Greenleaf himself. <laughs> Dick. You're listening to Outside of a Dog, where we decide whether great literature is actually any good. Hello and welcome to Outside of a Dog. My name is Dr. Christian Schneider. And I am Jonas the Wait. Ah, no. You're an imposter. You're pretending to be me. Uh, am I? I don't know anymore. I guess we're talking about a book that is a lot about impersonation, identity, and people who are basically indistinguishable in their appearance. And that's where this falls down, because uh, you're a lot taller and blonder and thinner than me. Today, we will be discussing The Talent Mr. Ripley by Patricia Highsmith. The book was published in 1955, and it is one of the first of Highsmith's novels. She had previously published Strangers on a Train and The Price of Salt, though that one was under a pseudonym. Patricia Highsmith, born in 1921, died in 1995, was, by all accounts, a difficult woman. Throughout her life, she suffered from various illnesses, both mental and physical. She was apparently more fond of the company of animals than of people. So, a troubled person, but not to use a cliché, a troubled genius, because she was also a prolific and very successful author of suspense novels. The Talented Mr. Ripley is the first book in the Ripleyad, a series of five books chronicling the life of, well, the titular Mr. Ripley. The book tells the story of young Thomas Ripley, who is basically offered a job by Richard Greenleaf, a wealthy businessman, who thinks that he is an acquaintance of his son Dickie. His son is spending all his time and his father's money in Italy. Mr. Greenleaf tells Tom basically to bring Dickie home. And while Tom is not really a friend of Dickie's, he accepts. When arriving in Italy, he is really fascinated by Dickie and his lifestyle, just living in a small village near Naples, going on trips everywhere in Europe, having a lot of money to spend on a lot of nice things. And he befriends Dickie, not always telling him the truth, though. Their friendship comes closer, but there's something wrong. Tom realizes that Dickie's attention is wandering elsewhere, that he's not really interested in him as a friend. And then things get violent. Now, I don't know whether we should actually spoil the story, but... Yes, we should. Because the most interesting thing basically happens in the middle of the novel. Tom kills Dickie and assumes his identity. The rest of the novel, we are basically following Tom, trying to cover up the traces of the crime, but at the same time living Dickie's life, renting a flat under his name, traveling around Europe, and always narrowly evading the attention of the Italian police, the attention of Dickie's friends, his lover Marge, and of Mr. Greenleaf, and in the end, succeeding. So Christian, this month it was your choice. Why did you suggest The Talented Mr. Ripley? Well, I was actually kind of following that note of suspense, of crime novels. But on the other hand, I thought, let's not do the, the typical stuff. Let's not talk about Agatha Christie novels or Sherlock Holmes or something like that. We might do that over the course of the podcast. Don't worry about it. But The Talented Mr. Ripley might be the first novel that really portrays a crime from the perspective of the criminal. Now, of course, you could say, that Dostoevsky has done that. But with Dostoevsky, it's more about the psychology. With the talented Mr. Ripley, there's a lot about the deed, about how to get away with murder, basically. 
I was under the impression that uh, 1942 is indeed before 1955, because that's the year where Camus published L'étranger, or The Stranger, which of course is in French. But... Again, again, L'étranger is more about the psychology of the deed. It's not really purporting to be a crime novel. Whereas the talented Mr. Ripley still is. It is very much interested in the details. So is it just watered down Camus? I'm not even going to acknowledge that in any way. No, actually, um, Highsmith has been credited as bringing existentialism and her own reading of Camus and Sartre and Nietzsche into the crime novel. So let's not say it in a way that denigrates her achievements. Let's instead say that she brought these concepts to the attention of a popular wide audience. And she still uses these popular methods that have been around since at least Sherlock Holmes. The novel is full of descriptions, full of descriptions of what Tom is doing, how he is reacting to new developments, the details where he is, how he looks, how he sees himself, how he is following what other people are doing. He is a little bit like a detective. Only what he's looking for is how to get away with things. Whereas people like Mersault in L'Etranger or uh, Raskolnikov in Dostoevsky, they have guilt-ridden. Tom Ripley is not interested in that. And I would like to talk about how she portrays his evil and whether it is actually evil. Because Tom Ripley is a murderer. He is a con artist. He is a liar. He is utterly amoral since we see his perspective on the narrative and we know that he has few qualms, if any. But at the same time, he is the hero. He's the protagonist. And we follow him and we actually empathize with him. We are glad that he's not caught by the police, even though he is a horrible human being. And if you read the other books in the Ripley, it's not getting any better. So I'm interested in how Patricia Highsmith portrays evil, basically. An evil, undeniably psychopathic character and still makes us root for him. I mean, what is his motive really he wants Dickie's life he wants an easy life he has a sense of entitlement that after his very difficult upbringing he deserves a better life and he wants Dickie's life in two ways really because throughout the novel again and again Ripley just wants to be liked in his conversations with Dickie's father he wants the father to approve of him when he is with Dickie and this friendship turns into an obsession on his part he wants Dickie to like him, to maybe even love him. But he also just wants the nice stuff. Towards the end of the novel, it says, He loved possessions, not masses of them, but a select few that he did not part with. They gave a man self-respect, not an ostentation, but quality, and the love that cherished the quality. Possessions reminded him that he existed and made him enjoy his existence. And I think this is really interesting because in some ways, Thomas Ripley for me is a missing link between two characters who we've already talked about. And that is Holden Caulfield and Patrick Bateman. Both neurotic men, young men, Caulfield in his late teens, Bateman and Ripley in their early to mid twenties. And they, on the one hand, look at the world around them and despair over it. But Bateman and Ripley definitely also like stuff and sort of define themselves through the stuff that they own. So I think there's a lot of the talented Mr. Ripley in American Psycho. And actually having read Ripley now really makes me see that American Psycho basically... Ripley's off? <laughs> Ripley's off Highsmith to a large extent. That is really good observation. And that fits that I read somewhere that basically the talented Mr. Ripley is a bit like a coming of age story. 
someone young and confused still trying to grapple with his position in life and with the question of morality how to be good and learning the in quotation marks wrong lesson that has no worth in being good and you mentioned that he's really interested in stuff but the quote you read also makes clear that he's interested in stuff not to have a kind of good life simply but to give himself a fixed sense of himself could you identify with tom I think that's the interesting thing. There are so many different facets to him that there is always something where you can identify with him. Especially those parts where he just wants to be liked, where he's worried about how people perceive him, but also how sometimes for him real life doesn't seem to affect him that much, but art does. Not so much now, but it reminded me of a younger me. Maybe the when I was the age that... Ripley is in the novel, I would have identified a lot more with him. So I'm, I'm kind of glad that I read this book in my late 20s rather than my early 20s, because uh, probably it wouldn't have been very helpful for me back then, or healthy. I think a certain degree of identification is probably inevitable, but too much is, well, too much. And I think one aspect where you can identify with Tom as well is how he is treated by Dickie, by Dickie's friend Freddie Miles, for what they perceive to be his, well, his, how they call it, his sissiness, his sexual deviancy. That is another big, well, not really subtext. It starts out as subtext and then becomes text. Queerness is a big part of the talent of Mr. Ripley that I would really like to talk about. Ripley himself says that he is attracted to both men and women, something that he shares with Highsmith, the author of the novel. But also he seems to be very conflicted about it, and we never see him engage in any sort of sexual relationship over the course of the novel. Also, his queerness is, as you said, made explicit, but is mainly made explicit by the people interacting with him. It is generally something that people accuse him of. It is generally something that people warn Dickie of. And I was astonished by the fact that it is made explicit. So this is a novel published in the 50s where I would have expected all of this to stay hush-hush and not to be explicitly discussed. And then Dickie just comes out and tells Tom, oh, by the way, I'm not gay in case you're interested in me. Absolutely. In the beginning, there are a lot of these signals. If you kind of know these methods of coding homosexuality or queerness in some way, then it's kind of obvious that Tom seems to be basically living off uh, some rich older man who pays for his bills, but he's had a fallout with him. So that seems to be still the, the kind of coding, the subtle way of indicating, aha, this is what his deal is. And then suddenly, boom, you get those very explicit terms, you get very explicitly Tom's thoughts about it and how he is conflicted about it, but doesn't deny it outright anyway. So the queerness is much more complex than a simple, oh, he's gay, but in the closet, or he's not sure what he is or something like that. And maybe that's Highsmith's own experiences. Apparently, she identified with Tom to a large degree, but also she saw many of her friends as representing certain facets of Tom. So Tom Ripley is very close to her and her heart. But I think it is also, again, linking to that question of identity. Sexual identity, again, is portrayed as something that is formed, that is formed not just by you, that is not given from what you are born with or something like that, but it is also attributed to you. And it is something, especially for someone who's young and tries to find his place in the world or her place in the world, it is something that can be confusing or that can sometimes even feel like a danger, but in the end, it is up to you. You are who you are. 
Would you say that Tom's queerness is presented as part of his evil, though? Because one of the most gripping parts of the novel for me was when Tom sees Dickie and Marge about to sleep with each other, and he is absolutely devastated by it. And partly it is because he's envious of this connection that they have to a level which is denied him, but also he just feels disgusted at the thought of her female body, and he always describes her as unshapely and sort of icky. It is, again, complicated. There sometimes seem to be these hints that he's motivated by uh, this sense of maybe jealousy or this sense of unrequited love. But again, there are other aspects. For example, when he kills Freddie Miles, mainly because Freddie found out that he's living under Dickie's name. And he thinks about what Freddie thought of him and how he saw him as a pansy, a sissy, or some other of those old-fashioned terms. And he basically accuses the now-dead Freddie Miles of being a hypocrite and of being a narrow-minded fool. And I think that was quite interesting, that basically these two things are not necessarily connected. They are connected, however, in his warped sense of identity in general. It all makes sense. But for us, the readers, it doesn't necessarily have to be connected. Let's talk about style. How would you describe the style of The Talented Mr. Ripley? Surprisingly normal, if that makes any sense. Very dry, almost analytical. Absolutely. Considering that Tom's perspective, which is prevalent throughout the book, we always again hear about his thoughts and how he sees the world. It is very dry. It is almost prosaic at times. There are some instances where the language, or at least the descriptions, get bit more poetic and especially the metaphors that are used are quite interesting. There are also some scenes where in this very dry style some extraordinary scenes are portrayed. For example when Tom basically has a sunstroke and he's just met Dickie and he still wants to impress Dickie but he can't. He's in his hotel room in the darkness but he is basically crawling on the floor following the sunbeams coming in through the window in order to get a little bit of a tan. That is portrayed in not in any extravagant style but simply that image I think is so striking that it really tells you a lot more about Tom than describing his thought in some fancy detail. I also am really amazed by the nonchalance in which the violence is dealt with. When Tom actually murders Dickie, it simply says, he picked up the oar as casually as if he were playing with it between his knees, and when Dickie was shoving his trousers down, Tom lifted the oar and came down with it on the top of Dickie's head. Firstly, of course, a lot of sexual innuendo in that passage again, but also the simple nonchalance of, oh yeah, and then he hit him over the head, and then there's a couple of more lines about how he beat him to death, but... All in all, it's very matter-of-fact. I like that a lot. I think it increases the potency of the horrors that we witness even more. And again, it's not that Tom always sees the world in the same kind of nonchalant way. At the end of the novel, for example, when he basically gets away with the crime and he's traveling from Italy to Greece, he has just had an experience with policemen waiting for him in the port he arrived in and he imagines what if there were would always be policemen waiting for him wherever he goes and again this is a simple image but it shows that he's not just a cold dry narrator of the evil things he does there are other things there Though it's interesting that this experience of seeing policemen and thinking they're there to arrest him is often cited as the end of the novel When it isn't, the last scene in the novel is him telling his Greek taxi driver to take him to 
the best hotel, the best in Italian. So that I think is another feature of the star. This mix of languages where we have Italian phrases, a couple of German words here and there, some French thrown in. It is this language of the cosmopolitan set where you keep an apartment in Venice and you jet off to Rome for the afternoon for espresso and then you go to the Alps to ski in the winter. And that language permeates the novel as well and ends it significantly because he doesn't just go to any hotel, he goes to the best. So Jonas, after having read about all these horrible and suspenseful things, what would you say are the high and the low light or how we could put it as well, the best hotel or the all to the head? Well, the best hotel, my favorite part of the novel probably, are these descriptions of the beautiful things in Italy. The houses, the art, the piazzi and the streets at the canals in Venice. Because I love Italy. My parents live there, quite close to Venice actually, not to show off, but to show off a bit. So I'm there frequently to visit them and just walking through the little streets and going to a bakery and picking up some of the local delicacies. I know what Tom Ripley feels there and enjoying this Dolce Vita is definitely one of the highlights of the novel for me. For me, something that is definitely a highlight is how the kind of secondary characters are portrayed. Because while we see them through Tom's perspective, we also get a sense of them in different facets. Dickie, for example, is on the one hand this kind of alluring figure, this kind of golden boy, but we also know that he's frustrated easily He's not evil, he's not really a rake, he's a lot of things. And Marge, for example, who Tom in the beginning basically just summarizes as that stupid cow that is uh, working against him, in the end seems to be somehow like a friend. And it's not that he sees her as just a fool, he kind of appreciates that friendliness. So the whole cast of characters, these different Americans in Europe, really adds up to this world that Highsmith presents to us. But there are also the downsides of the novel. And I think for me, a big downside is a fundamental one. Because I really didn't like reading yet another book about a charismatic fraudster who gets away with it because he's just a step ahead and he's clever in fooling people. We're recording this on the day where Boris Johnson becomes prime minister. And he is not smart. He's he not... Is. He is. That's the, the, no, the... but he's not smart in the same way as Thomas Ripley. He's not suave. He plays on people's emotions and he plays on their prejudices, but he never does something as clever as Thomas Ripley does. And he is so dull in his privileged boorishness that probably writing a book about him would be very challenging and it wouldn't be half as much fun as the talented Mr. Ripley. And that's a problem because if we always engage with evil in fiction in this charismatic, entertaining way, we might expect evil to look like that in the real world as well and therefore not recognize it. And there's a lot of it around. The thing I liked least about the novel is that judging it from a kind of procedural point of view, there are some points where you just go, hang on a minute. For example, that Thomas is interviewed by the same two policemen who interviewed him 
while he was imitating Dickie, but now he's playing basically himself. That might make sense from the kind of psychological viewpoint that he's getting away with it and how that says something about his identity and so on. But for a novel that is so focused on these minutiae, on these details and how he gets away with it, there are sometimes these points where you really think he couldn't have gotten away with it. Not even the, the Italian police in the 50s would have been that amateurish. So as a crime novel, it only functions to a certain degree. At a certain point, you just have to root for Tom to succeed in order for him to succeed, basically. But the question we're asking here is, is great literature actually any good? So what would you say, Christian? Is it any good? Should our listeners read The Talented Mr. Ripley? I still think yes. I think it is a book that is very entertaining, that is very easy to read. But what I found most interesting is that it is still valid. It describes the world of the 1950s, and many of the things seem to be out of date. But these Ripleys, as you mentioned, they're still out there. And while they might not be as glamorous, many of these aspects of how to deal with people, how to get something in the world, and all of that, I think that is still valid. And I think that makes The Talented Mr. Ripley still maybe not important, but definitely a very, very fitting read for our times. And as I said, it's just a lot of fun to read. It definitely is a lot of fun. It's a page turner, but I would say you don't have to read it. It's entertaining, but you're not going to miss out on learning something important about life if you don't read it, because it is not about life. It is a glittery fiction, and as I said, it might not be very helpful for understanding our world today. So if you don't follow my advice and go with Jonas's stupid, stupid recommendation, what should you read instead then? Well, I would recommend a book about a real-life case of impersonation and identity theft, which happened in the 16th century. The book I'm recommending is The Return of Martin Gare by Natalie Simon Davis, published in 1983. Martin Gare was a peasant who went off to war, leaving his wife and child behind, didn't come back. Eight years later, he comes back, or at least someone who claims to be Martin Gare. But then his father-in-law becomes suspicious and sues him and says, no, you're not actually Martin. And then Martin Gare comes back during the trial. It is a great account of a weird event in European history, but also asks these questions. What was it like for the people around him? Why did they believe? Were they complicit or were they fooled? Or how did they react to this? It is a seminal work of historiography, but also just a really great read. And staying with the topic of French history, I would like to recommend a book from the 19th century, and that is The Red and the Black by Stendhal. Namely because it is also about a character similar to Tom Ripley, at least when it comes to social climbing and using other people to his advantage. But the character I'm talking about, Julien Sorel, is much more linked to the French society around him, still shaken by the revolution, by Napoleon, and you understand a lot more why Julien does what he seemingly needs to do, because that's the society he was born into. So if you are into this kind of narrative of the social climber without necessarily having to read another story about a charismatic, evil person. I would recommend The Red and the Black by Stendhal. So two books that we recommend to you, but of course books are not everything. And there is a very good film version of The Talented Mr. Ripley, or at least I've heard it's good, but we don't really have the space to discuss it here. However, good news. 
If you go to patreon.com slash outside of a dog, you can become a supporter of the podcast and get access to bonus episodes in which we will discuss the adaptations of the books that we discussed in our main episodes. Now, the main episodes will always remain free, but in order to support ourselves and the podcast, we launched a Patreon and we would really appreciate your support. We have four tiers. For $1 a month, you can support us on the basic level and you get basically our never-ending gratitude. Never, never-ending gratitude. For $2 a month, you join the Christmas card here, where you get our never-ending gratitude and a personalized greeting at the end of the year. For $5 a month, you actually get extra episodes, like, for example, about the film adaptation of The Talented Mr. Ripley, but other adaptations of novels or plays we already talked about. And for $10 a month, you get access to a completely new series which we're starting, talking about the man who is generally considered one of the greatest writers in the English language, William Shakespeare. But we are, of course, doing it with an outside-of-a-dog twist. We call the series Slosh Shakespeare, where we, we get drunk and discuss the greatest plays ever written. I don't know whether it's a good idea, but you can find out for only $10 a month. So... If you are at all able to support us, please go to patreon.com slash outside of a dog. But you can also support us simply by giving us a great review on Apple Podcasts, for example. You can follow us on Twitter at Outside of a Hound. And you can like us on Facebook where we're called Outside of a Dog. And you can always write us an email at outsideofadogcast at gmail.com. Our homepage is outsideofadogcast.com. So Jonas, after you had enough about charismatic social climbers who claim to be someone they are not, what are we going to read next time? Well, you've got me there because we're sticking with that for now. Next month, we're going back to the 20s as I say goodbye to my 20s. We're going to read The Great Gatsby. Is he talented though? He has a talent for parties, jazz hands. I'm doing jazz hands. You can't see it, but I'm doing them. He's doing them. He is doing them. Woo! Thank you very much for listening. For more information, visit outsideofadogcast.com. Strangers on a train. No, just that you know all this. Exchanging murders. By the way. That's how the professionals do it. Oh, no, I ruined it. (laughs)